Why don't you guys turn to Luke chapter 19 right now? Luke chapter 19. I remember waking up and hearing about it. I was a sophomore in high school, 10th grade. And as usual, my brother and I woke up to Air One, got ready for school, and that's when we first heard about it. And I thought, that's bizarre. Then I went to school and started to see how bizarre it was. I remember the class gathering around an old television with the rabbit ears and the teacher doing everything he can to get those ears just right so he could pick up the passing airwaves of one of those over-the-air newscasts. We even had foil attached to the antenna. And just barely through all the, the static and snow on the screen, we could see, oh, wow, this isn't just bizarre. This is serious. And I remember very vividly uh, my initial thoughts to what I was seeing. And what we were seeing were two towers in New York City smoking because terrorists had flown planes into those towers. And I can remember, well, as a boy, a little boy being like, wow, that's amazing. But then kind of like letting reality set in and say, oh, my goodness, I'm probably going to die in war in the next four years. And um, just the buzz it generated and, you know, the way a teenage mind kind of processes that. And then about a year and a half later, we have our invasion of Iraq. President Bush launches it. And the first stage of this invasion is called shock and awe, where we try to show the prowess of America in a very short burst with all of our missiles, thousands of them being launched over 48 hours, um, just to strike fear into our enemies' hearts, the terrorists, to say, Do you sure, are you sure you want to keep going with your plans? Because this is just a little taste of what we can do. And I recall, I'm still in high school, I'm still a teenager, I'm still full of masculine adrenaline, and I recall how cool it was that this war was going to be televised, right? That I would be able to watch footage of bombs blowing up a city. And as you're watching, it was amazing that, I, I don't even remember which, I'm sure all the newscasts did it, but they have like statistics. Like while everything is in action, it would kind of put up a side frame like a football game with the type of bomb that you're seeing and the stats underneath it, how much it costs, how far it can travel, what kind of destruction it has. And it was kind of entertaining. And it felt really good. It, it felt really good to see, all right, we got them back. All right, we're doing something about evil in this world. Um, you know, when, we, when America claimed that, all right, Baghdad is now ours a few days later, it felt good. Like, yeah, all right, progress. They took our towers down, now we got a city. And then, you know, Saddam Hussein's taken down, yes. And then eventually Osama bin Laden gets captured, and it just feels good, right? It feels right. And then something happened in 2015 that sent me into this moment of uncertainty. Uh, November 13th, 2015, you may remember, there was a series of coordinated terrorist attacks in Paris in which bombs went off at various places, killing over 100 people and many more wounded. And, you know, how, especially in America, I think because we relate to people in France more than we do in the Middle East, we thought, wow, this is really tragic. This has never happened before. Um, and we, we really rallied around France and felt the pain of that. And then it was two days later that France attacked the city Raqqa uh, in Iraq and um, bombed one of the terrorist areas there. And I remember my initial reaction being, yes, like these guys just don't learn that they can't mess with us. And we're going to find them. We're going to track them down. We're going to get them. And it was in a, it, it was, I was, I was by then a Bible teacher here at Lake Road Christian School. And, um, when I, when I saw that news report that we had bombed that city, or France had bombed it, and I, I read that, I said, yes! It was then for the first time 
there was this little voice inside me that said, really? Is that how Jesus would have responded? I thought, oh man, why are you always ruining everything? (laughs) Now, I think that's a good question. You may be pretty sure on your answer to that question. You may not be. Tonight, I'm going to be vulnerable with you, so please be kind. I'm going to tell you that I don't know what I believe when it comes to war and violence. I, growing up, was all for it. I loved war movies. I loved that we were getting the bad guys. But somewhere more recently, as I've studied Jesus, and I'm not, you got to hear me. As I studied Jesus, I started to ask better questions about what does the kingdom of God actually look like living and reigning amongst us? Does it look like rooting for the bad guys being slaughtered? Now, I'm questioning. I'm a seeker, and I want to take you through this passage with me. I'm not going to tell you what to think, because I don't know what to think. So I'm glad he came for the expert's advice, right? Um, but I do want to say, I'm an American, through and through. I was born here. I was, um, I mean, I love America. I'm proud to be American. And I never haven't been. Um, so I don't want anybody, sometimes when you hear things that are new for us, we start to classify these things in preconceived labels. And so I know what's going to happen. Someone's going to say, oh, Brandon's a pacifist, and he's anti-America's policies, and that's going to happen. So if you're doing that, just know, I'm telling you now, you can't do that. Um, So, yes, I'm proud to be American, and I love America. And I don't have all the answers. Though I see that there's a very clear message here Jesus is giving, I'm not sure that we can come to specific conclusions without a good conversation as it relates to things in our modern world. Let's be honest, the world is complicated. There are Hitlers who rise into power. There are, uh, uh, there are 9-11s. There are bombings in Paris. There are school shootings. You know, there's a conversation in our nation about violence. And there's obviously the unspoken conversation about war. What does a Christian who devotes himself to the kingdom of God do with this? Now, I'm an American, and you guys are too. And I think most of us are proud to be Americans. And we want to be considered good patriots. But we need to remember too that we are first and foremost and above all else citizens of the kingdom of God. That is our allegiance, and we will do our best to be faithful Americans as well. As Paul said to the Romans, hey, honor your government. Yes, you belong to the kingdom of Christ, but don't undermine the kingdom of Caesar without having the proper obedience to it. So, um, can we just, before we go on, can we just say thank you to everybody who has served in our military? I'm very grateful for people who have served. And, yeah, I didn't ask you to stand up. I, I don't know if you want that kind of attention, but we do thank you. I thank you from the bottom of my heart. I've never had to pick up a gun and shoot it at somebody or be screamed at by a drill sergeant. Um, but some of you have, and that's not an easy thing, and we thank you. So, shall we go into Luke with that opening? Luke 19. I realized real quickly that for the sake of time, I told you guys I'm doing verses 11 to 48. I'm not going to do the parable in verse 11, but I will tell you what it says. So we'll just do a couple verses. Luke 19, 11. As they heard these things, Jesus proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem. And because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Okay, setting. Jesus is walking with a group of pilgrims going to Jerusalem to worship on the Passover, like these good Jews did every year. And Jesus is with a crowd, as you would. You travel crowds, you tell stories, you would. It's safety in numbers. You know, you're not in your little bulletproof car on the freeway. You're with, you're out in the open. And these guys went through Samaria, so credit them for the courage. 
Jerusalem's now in sight. So they're very close to the city. And it says, they suppose the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So those around Jesus understand he's their Messiah, he's their Lord, and that he's going to bring a kingdom. But Jesus knows that the kingdom he's bringing is not the sort or brought about in the manner that they're thinking. So he tells a parable to clarify what's going to happen. The parable goes on to say that there was a, there was a, a, a master who brought his servants and gave them all sums of money and then went away to go and request his kingdom, which Jews knew about. Because Herod, Herod was a king over the Jews who had to go to Rome to gain permission to be a ruler over the Jews. Rome said, sure, we'll use you to rule over the area. So the Jews are very used to the concept of having to go and ask for a kingdom. This guy goes and asks. While he's away, the servants send a delegation ahead of him to say, don't let this man reign over us. We don't want him. Some of the servants remain faithful and use the money the master gave them to make more money. Well, the master comes back and he asks to, to one guy who did nothing with the money. You can tell he's probably part of the sort that said we don't want him to reign over us. Verse 22, the master said to him, this is the guy, he made no money back. I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? Question mark. Very important. Verse 22 is a question. The master is looking at this guy and saying, wait, you really thought I was a severe man? He's not saying I am a severe man. He's saying you thought I was a severe man? If you really believe that about me, why didn't you at least put my money in the bank? So, the absurdity here is I gave you guys money and you think I'm severe and stingy and cruel. You obviously got the wrong master. And so he's called out on this. And uh, then, of course, we see the master gives the, his, his funds to other people. Um, but as for these, verse 27, as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Wow. All right, verse 28. <laughs> so he tells that parable as they're coming to Jerusalem to say this. Hey, guys, you're wanting me to go and launch a war against Rome. I'm not going to do it that way. Instead, there's going to be this waiting period where I'm going to go and get a kingdom and I'm going to come back. So don't be ready for the war right now. That's not what I'm about. That's not what I'm doing. So he tells them this to let them know, calm down, nothing's going to happen in Jerusalem. Verse 28, and now the famous entry, Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. 28, when Jesus had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethage of Beth and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat untie it and bring it here if anyone asks you why are you untying it you shall say this the lord has need of it so those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them and as they were untying the colt its owner said to them why are you untying the colt and they said the lord has need of it I just love how, like, that's apparently self-explanatory. Like, hey, stranger, we're taking your donkey. Why? The Lord has need of it. Okay. <laughs> Take my car. Sure. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they, sent, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And so 
we have the scene of Jesus coming with the pilgrims who are going to Jerusalem. And, and Jerusalem swells, uh, historians say, over twice as full during these festivals. So you take a normal city that's hustling, bustling, you double the population over the course of a week, <laughs> you have problems. You have traffic problems. You have uh, <laughs> jurisdiction problems. The police force would be very overwhelmed. And so, um, but there's a lot of crowd here and there's a lot of excitement because yes, the Messiah is here and he's going to take over and cleanse the filthy Romans from our presence and give us freedom and give us our city and our land. Now, so they're getting excited and they begin waving palm branches and Jesus sits on a donkey. What were the Jews thinking? Like, they could really take down the Roman government? It rules the world. And they want to they wanna try to take it down? What were they really thinking? They were thinking that they've done this before. What is Passover, the festival they're about to celebrate? What is Passover? What does it celebrate? Passover celebrated that miraculous time when they were ruled by the Egyptians and enslaved by the Egyptians. And they didn't even have a land. They were in Egypt. Slaves. And God intervenes through one person, Moses, and leads Israel out of Egypt. So what is Passover about? It's about the time that God showed up to save us from pagan enemies who rule over us. And here is this leader who's gaining a following, who's talking about a kingdom who calls himself, or others at least, call him a Lord, a son of God. Is this like Moses? Is he going to lead us out of the bondage of the Romans? So yes, you do the numbers, like, there's no way they can overtake Rome. But then you look at their history and you think, but with God on their side, they can do anything. So they grab palm branches. Okay, there's a really tense picture here that you have to see. First, the palm branches. What do these palm branches symbolize? Roughly 150 years before this moment, Israel had a moment where the Greeks ruled over them, and they were very vicious and brutal. There was a great persecution in Jerusalem under the Greeks. Now, it got so bad that they turned to the only thing they had left. Let's throw a revolution. And so a guy named Judas Maccabee became the leader of this revolution. And he led a series of violent attacks against the Greeks. Now, the Jews had no business conquering the Greeks in this time of history. Yet God, they believed... The way they tell the stories, you can read about these in the Maccabees. They're not in the Bible, but they're in the Catholic Bible. Um, the Maccabees believed that God was behind them in this war effort, and that Judah was able to overcome and get rid of the Greeks, cleanse Jerusalem, cleanse the temple through God's efforts on their behalf. And when Judah won and was ready to enter into the newly reclaimed Jerusalem, do you know what his warriors and the citizens did upon his entry? They waved palm branches to signify, thank you, Judah, for delivering us from the Greeks. And so Judah then establishes what's known as the Maccabean dynasty. Or, um, yeah. Um, and what he does is he, as usually new kings and regimes do, is he minted new coins. And guess what he put as an image on the coins? Not himself, because Jews would believe that would be putting a god on a coin, a face of a human. No, he put palm branches on these coins. The palm branch became the symbol of their liberation from the oppressive Greeks. And so the crowd see Jesus coming, and they're waving palm branches. That's not an accident. It's not like, oh, what's around? Oh, a palm branch. Let's wave that. No, the palm branch is symbolic of violent revolutionary overthrow of your oppressors. They are egging Jesus on to be the next Judah Maccabee. And we can do it. We know Rome's strong, but God will be on our side when we do it.
contrast to this, so there's this one, on one hand, we see the palm branch of let's start war. On the other hand, we see Jesus on a donkey. What does a donkey symbolize? Well, if you will, turn over to Zechariah chapter 9. This is important. Jesus, uh, or Matthew, Matthew actually writes this verse into this passage. It's very clear why Jesus chooses a donkey and not a horse, or why he doesn't just walk in on foot. The donkey was Jesus' choice to make a statement. Just like the palm branch was a statement, the donkey is a statement. And here's the statement. Zechariah, by the way, it's just before the New Testament starts. Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Where is Jesus? Yeah, he's at Jerusalem, at Zion. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus wasn't just riding a donkey, remember? He's riding a colt, a baby donkey. Yeah, this is very specific. So what then does this donkey symbolize? Well, one, this is the coming king that the prophets were talking about. But don't miss the next message of this prophecy. Verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Whoa. So the king's going to come on a donkey and with his coming will be peace to the nations. And all of those things of battle, the war horse, the bow, the chariot, they will be cut off. They will be out of the picture. Or to modernize it, the rifle, the helicopter, the tank will not be part of the coming of Jesus, his kingdom. So there's this tension, I think, if you see it now, of on, on one hand, the crowds are saying, all right, war, victory, let's fight. And Jesus is saying, I'm coming to bring peace. We're not going to fight. We're not going to have a war. Some other passages in the Old Testament that would have been known, if the Jews were willing to, um, Isaiah chapter 2. This, by the way, Isaiah 2 verse 2, was the most cited verse in the Bible in the early church times. So in all the records, this verse came up more than any other. And it was known by some of the church fathers' writings that every Christian knew this passage by heart. I think it's pretty important, isn't it? So what did the early Christians dedicate themselves to memorizing? Isaiah 2 verse 2 through 4. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. All right, so there's going to be a great coming. The early church apparently thinks that this was in motion, that it started as people from all over the Roman Empire were coming to Jesus. What is Jesus going to teach these nations? What way is he going to show them? Verse 4. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Okay, so weapons of war will be reshaped into harvesting tools. In other words, this king will teach us how to feed people, not how to kill people. 
Now, I know because I was, I was taught the same thing. Well, that's about when Jesus returns. That's about his second coming. That's when that's going to happen. However, my only point to that is the early church seemed to think it was already in motion. Otherwise, they wouldn't have spent the time learning it. And why not? Why can we not say that the Jesus who's on the throne right now is asking us to seek peace rather than just wait to the end of time? Why wouldn't the king of peace ask his people to be people of peace in the meantime? Why do we have to limit this to the future? Nothing we can do about it. Just some thoughts. One more. Isaiah 52. This one's pretty well known. I'm starting to annoy myself. Isaiah 52, verse 7. See if this is not about Jesus riding on the donkey into Jerusalem. By the way, you know the next chapter. It's the passage about the suffering servant, whom we know is Jesus on the cross. So see if the passage I'm going to read in 52 does not sound like the triumphal entry. 52, verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, which is gospel, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Now, salvation can be interpreted, good news can be interpreted in two ways. We've been delivered from our political oppressors. That is salvation. But notice it says, He publishes peace and then publishes salvation. This is not going to be a kind of salvation that is done through violence. The only violence that we're going to see is the one done upon the leader himself, but not violence that he inflicts. He's going to take the hit, as we know on the cross. The voice, verse 8, the voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice together. They sing for joy. Is that not what they were doing as Jesus rode in? The multitudes began to sing Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's like they're the watchmen and here's the good news of peace coming or here's the king of salvation coming. The feet upon the mountains that brings good news. So they erupt into singing. The watchmen see it happening. For eye to eye they shall see the return of the Lord to Zion. God left Israel in their exile, 500 years before Jesus, in the book of Ezekiel, we see that God's presence leaves the temple. And do you know where the presence of God went? Ezekiel said it went up and over the Mount of Olives and disappeared. What is Jesus doing now? He's coming over those very same Mount of Olives and coming to the temple. This is the return of Yahweh to Jerusalem. He's coming back. So they, verse 9, break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of the Lord. So there's a passage about his coming in peace. And so, back in Luke 19, we have Jesus on an animal that preaches peace to those who know their prophets, amidst a people who are waving palm branches that say war. What a scene. And yet we sometimes just domesticate this passage, don't we? Well, usually in Mark and in Matthew, Jesus goes right on up to the temple after this writing in, and he cleanses the house. By the way, you know that Judas Maccabee did that when he defeated the Greeks. He went into the temple, cleansed the pagan idols from it, and rededicated it to God. That, by the way, is what the Jews celebrate on Hanukkah. Well, Jesus, as expected, is riding into Jerusalem, and he's going to go to the temple, and he's going to clean house. But this passage adds one little episode before he gets there, and it is very telling. Look at verse 41. When Jesus drew near and saw the city, he sees these palm branches. He sees their hopes of killing Romans to have freedom. When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known 
on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. You did not know that this was the day Yahweh came to bring peace to you. So what's he saying? You're going to be destroyed. We know in A.D. 70, 40 years after Jesus is saying this, that the Romans surround Jerusalem and dismantle the temple stone by stone and completely destroy it, crucifying thousands of Jews outside of the city. It was horrific. What led up to that moment? A four-year war led by a group of zealots in the Jewish nation to fight against the Roman Empire. Jesus didn't do it for us, so we sent him to the cross. And so now, finally, we got enough people willing to fight that we tried to take over the Romans. Did God come on their behalf and deliver them? No. The Romans won that war. And true to Jesus' prediction, because you rejected my coming and my message of peace, you will suffer. Which now ties in that parable very nicely. Some of those servants rejected the master as their king. And what happened to them? You saw in verse 27. As for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Who slaughters them? Not the master. They just simply are slaughtered before him. Who slaughters the Jews after this rejection of Jesus? Not God, the Romans. Because this is, Jesus' message is, this is where the path to violence leads. He who, he says elsewhere, right, in the garden to Peter, he who lives by the sword dies by the sword. And he's warning a nation of palm branch wavers. This is not the way to salvation. I'm going to show you the way when I take the hostility on the cross, when I don't attack my enemy, but I absorb their hatred. It's been said that Jesus is easy to believe in, but hard to follow. I think these crowds believed in him, but they didn't want to follow his idea of the kingdom of God. That's why a week later they're saying crucify him. He's a disappointment. That's why many people believe Judas betrays Jesus for money. Judas thinks he's getting Jesus his invitation to start the revolution. Remember in the garden, they come with swords and clubs to arrest him? They were fully expecting armed resistance. And Jesus said, what is, what is this? You come with clubs to come and arrest a violent revolutionary? Which, by the way, is the Greek word he uses. Jesus weeps over Jerusalem because of their goal to win by killing. And I wonder how many more nations and how many more cities he weeps over to this day. Then verse 45. Then he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Now, in verse 46, what Jesus says is very interesting. He strings together a quotation of two Old Testament passages, which the New King James very nicely puts in quotations for you. First is, my house shall be called a house of prayer. That's citing um, Isaiah. And that the fuller passage there is, um, uh, all nations will start coming to the house of God. So one of the reasons Jesus is upset with the temple is that they're not letting Gentiles worship God. There's a sign on the wall that says, a Gentile who passes this wall will be responsible for his own death. 
Yeah, they were very hostile toward Gentiles in this place of worship. One thing that would upset Jesus is, why are you excluding the very people we are hoping to bring to God? But the second quotation is the one I want to emphasize tonight. But you have made it, quote, a den of robbers. This, he's quoting from Jeremiah chapter 7. And it's worth looking at because that's his point. He could say whatever he wants, but he's intentionally citing the Old Testament so they know exactly what he's accusing them of. I'm accusing you of what happened in Jeremiah 7. So, if you will, go to Jeremiah 7. Jeremiah is sort of in the middle-ish of your Bible. So Jeremiah 7, the prophet Jeremiah goes to the temple of God, just as Jesus goes to, and he begins to prophesy doom upon them, just as Jesus is doing. And this is what he says. So you have to understand, Jesus is thinking of this passage when he calls those in the temple a den of robbers. Jeremiah 7, uh, verse 8. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, that's a god, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered! Only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name, <clears throat> where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. Okay, that last part about Shiloh, you might remember, like in Samuel, when Israel first goes in the promised land and finally set up, they set up the tabernacle in Shiloh. That's where the temple is at first. Eventually, it was moved from Shiloh to Jerusalem when David becomes king. In Shiloh, um, Jeremiah is saying, you can go look at Shiloh now. It's a heap of rubble. It's a pile of ruins. There's nothing to look at at Shiloh. And so he's warning that will happen to this temple too if we don't keep using the temple as a den of robbers. And, well, not long after Jeremiah's day, after this prophecy, the Babylonians destroy the temple. This is just what Jesus was saying to the Jews. Now, what's interesting is we are quick to think that when Jesus says, don't turn my father's house into a den of robbers, we think, oh, he's talking to the money changers and those who are selling animals. Well, actually, that was necessary. The Jews wouldn't take Roman coinage, so you had to do a money exchange to use Jewish money for the Jewish temple. Um, the animals were because no one would travel with an animal to go worship God on Passover because you'd risk breaking your animal's foot or having a deformity happen, and then you just lost your sacrificial animal. So it was much easier and convenient to buy an animal there at the temple. Now, were they making a profit on this? Who knows? Maybe we don't actually know. But what Jesus seems to be more upset about, the robbery, the thievery, is not that the temple is where they're robbing people. Jesus seems to think that the temple is the den of robbers. It's where the robbers go after they do their crime to hide out. Look what he says in Jeremiah. He tells them how they're living. It's injustice. They're... um, I keep losing my spot. They're, uh, they're stealing, they're murdering, they're committing adultery, they're swearing falsely, they're making offerings to Baal and other gods, and then they come and stand in the house and say, oh, we love, we love God. We're, we're his people. And Jeremiah's like, are you kidding me? You live in injustice, and then you come to worship. You are robbing the nation, you're robbing your neighbor, and then you come hide out in the house of God and say, oh, but we're decent chaps. That's the den of robbers. You live like a robber and you come and hide here. And Jesus looks at the temple in Jerusalem and sees the same thing is going on. They're not living like God's people. All they think about is bloodthirst and getting rid of the Romans and hating them so that they can finally be free and be what? The people of God? Is that ironic or what? 
and that the temple became the place where these violent revolutionaries planning government overthrow were actually meeting and assembling. The word robber in the Greek is leistes, leistes. And it is often translated as a brigand or a revolutionary or a militia man or, very well known at the time, a zealot. A zealot was a Jew who believed in killing to gain Israel's independence. In fact, some of the zealots would walk around on the temple mound and spot the priests who worked in collaboration with the Romans so that they could continue to be rich. And when the crowds were really thick in Jerusalem, they would walk by and slip a knife into their stomach. No one would ever know who did it in the crowd. And these zealots were meant to terrorize people. The zealots eventually were the ones that caused the overthrow of Jerusalem as they fought the Romans literally in AD 70. Jesus is calling out that this zealot mentality, this violence is being held it's, giving, it's being given refuge in the temple of God itself. And this Jesus has to cleanse. Well, I told you Jesus is not easy to follow. Here he's calling into question their way of living. I don't know what this means for us. I have no clue. Can you survive in the modern world without a military? Do we get rid of our military because Jesus is for nonviolence? Do we have shame because we serve in the military? I don't think that we can quickly make a jump and say that. Does this mean that we should not have been involved in World War II? These are good questions. I don't have a clue how to answer any of these. But I do know that individually, we can become people who follow the peace of Christ. The Romans had a phrase called Pax Romana. Pax Romana was this, this basically propaganda that we've brought the world peace. And their way of doing that was anybody who rises up against us, like Jerusalem in AD 70, we will slaughter. That'll bring peace. And oh yeah. They kept the empire together for a very long time at the expense of anyone who questioned Rome. That's Pax Romana, peace, Roman peace. Is that the way of the kingdom of God? Pax Christi looks different. Uh, the Pax of the peace of Jesus Christ. Where Rome would say, sacrifice the others to maintain our peace, Jesus says, sacrifice the self to give everyone else peace. And he would model that as he goes to the cross. The other irony of this picture of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey is that just days before Jesus does this, there was a triumphal entry just before Jesus. Not just Judah Maccabee 150 years ago, but just days before a, a Roman official called Pontius Pilate, rode into Jerusalem with his own entourage, Pilate on a white horse, led before not a crowd of peasants shouting Hosanna, but an army of soldiers. And they would have been flying, not palm branches, but the Roman emblem of the eagle and other emblems of the gods. And they would have been fully decked in their armor. And you would have heard their leather creaking. And you would have seen the sun gleaming on their spears. And you would have heard their feet marching on the stone pavement as they entered Jerusalem. And what was Pontius Pilate doing? Well, Pontius Pilate couldn't stand Jerusalem. He loved living over in Caesarea by the sea. He liked his little beachside resort. But when he had to, he would go to Jerusalem. So why would he go to Jerusalem on Passover? Well, because it's swelling up to double its size with pilgrims, and they're all celebrating what kind of a festival? Oh yeah, one in which God delivered them from foreign oppressors in the past. So you have the equivalent of Fourth of July, right? 
And you have a ton. You have a mob, really. You can have a total mob movement happen. They're all in Jerusalem. Pontius Pilate needs to up the security like no other time in the year. So he marches in with a full garrison right in the view of everybody and just kind of marches in to say, I dare you, Jews. I dare you. And while Jesus goes to the temple, he goes to the fortress Antonia right next to the temple where the Roman soldiers were stationed. Pilate comes in with a bang and says, just in case you thought about fighting, remember who's here. That makes Jesus's entry all the more ironic, doesn't it? He's not coming in with soldiers and weapons. He's coming in on the donkey and he's saying, this is the way to peace. I'm going to give my life for the world. That's the Pax Christi, the peace of Christ. The model of sacrificing the self. Brothers and sisters, I don't know that it's beneficial that you literally go die for somebody this week because then we would all be gone and it wouldn't be very helpful. But there are things about ourselves that we can die to. And these are the things that we guard our territory over. We establish our own, the kingdom of Brandon, over these things. And I will fight people over these things. Power, prestige, possessions. These are the things that we build a self with. We try to distinguish ourselves from others. The things you wear can often become that distinguishing thing. I'm a, I'm a person that wears these kind of clothes. I shop at Nordstrom. You shop at the rack. I know. I make more money. Like, this is the, this is the way society works, is sometimes our possessions become barometers of how worthy you are. Prestige. What kind of job do you have? Oh, you're a writer? You know, in the apocalypse, we're not going to need writers. We're going to need people like me who build things. We can have this sort of sense of status about what we've accomplished in life. Oh, you pastor a hundred, I pastor a thousand. Um, power, power. Those things we have that keep us in control. Because we love to have control over people. And the more I feel in control, the more powerful I feel, the more awesome I feel. But Jesus is actually calling us to a different P, the way of peace. And often power, prestige, and possessions can get in the way of us living at peace with one another. So Jesus says, die to your power. Die to your prestige. Die to your possessions. Don't let those define you or own you or tell you how to write the policies of your kingdom. Peace must be the way. So be willing, be quicker to sacrifice yourself than to build the self up at another person's expense. That's the kind of peace we can follow. One passage and we'll be done. Go ahead and go over to your right to James chapter 4. James is towards the end of the New Testament. Hebrews, the book of James, first and second Peter. And James 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Why do we fight? Why do we have a lack of peace? Why do you have that grudge against that person? Why do Facebook posts often become contentious? Why do we often not get along with in-laws or neighbors? Why are there people you have on your, if I could murder and get away with it, list, I would do it. Uh, Why do we have these things? Why do nations go to war against nation? I mean, really, nations are just a macrocosm of the individual. Why do these things happen? Why is there violence? Because, James tells us, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You lust for power. You want prestige and attention and acclamation. You want stuff. Verse 2, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly 
to spend it on your passions. What is James saying? We're deprivated. That's why we're violent. We don't get what we need because when we ask for what we need, we're asking for it so that I can be better than everybody else. James is saying if we learn to ask Jesus properly for the things we truly need, that I would become a more merciful person so that I can show mercy to people around me. That I will get. And that will stop at least one war in my life. That if I can ask Jesus to forgive this person I'm having a hard time forgiving, that he'll give to me because it's for the benefit of other people as well as me. And that will stop another war in my life. But so often, our requests are, God, I can only afford a Honda, but I would really like an Acura. Can you please give me a promotion? We have some silly prayers. We have some silly requests. God, I know Bozo's going out with her, but I really want her instead. Can you just make him break his leg or something or make his face burn so he looks ugly and she doesn't like him? My coworker always sucks up to the boss. Oh, Lord, let him fail miserably at this project so that I get noticed. I don't know that that's the kind of prayer we're being asked to pray. I think we're being asked to pray for the things we need, which means admitting there's a death in ourselves, that I have a need. It's not a possession to add or power to hold. It's, a, you know what, I really am a hateful, vengeful person, and I'm holding a grudge on that person I admit it, God, I have violence in my heart. Will you give me forgiveness and love and mercy and compassion? That's the prayer that he answers. And that's the prayer that stops our fighting and our quarrels. So brothers and sisters, let's not model in our lives, at least, the Pax Romana. Do what it takes to keep my inner peace. Let's model the Pax Christi, which says, I'll let this false self I've built up die for the sake of giving peace to all others around me. And who knows what will happen? Heaven knows our country needs it internally. Right? We're going to come to the beautiful table of Christ now where he's given himself to us. And he promised, peace I give to you, but not as peace as the world gives Peace as the world gives is just that moment when everyone stands around reloading for the next war. (laughs) The peace Christ gives is something that lasts. It's first of all internal, and if lived with and held, it will become external, and we will be peacemakers and peace givers to people around us. And Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they are the children of God. So, Father, as we come to your table tonight, we're asking that you would make us peacemakers.